Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So my guest today is Constant Scharf. She is the internationally recognized speaker and author on topics of addiction, recovery, and mental health. She is the co-author of Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation, and author of the award-winning poetry book, Meeting God at Midnight. Constant is going to talk about all the other things you can do in your life to bring about recovery and create a meaningful, joyful life. How we can use music, meditation, breathing to help heal from addiction and trauma. Constant's passion is definitely contagious. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Constant Scharf, and she is going to talk a little bit about her story and also talk about complementary modalities that can help us through addiction and mental health issues. Constant, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Constant Scharf. I have a PhD in transformative studies. I study the nature of change. How does change occur in an individual? And I was interested in this because 
you know, I'm in recovery myself. I've been sober for more than 23 years. And I saw people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who weren't getting sober. And a lot of them were killing themselves. And so I thought I was suicidally depressed at, I don't know, eight years sober, whatever it was at the time. And I thought there has to be better treatment for us. So I changed everything I was doing in graduate school. And, you know, I don't think that there's really any greater personal transformation than what happens when a person goes from active addiction to recovery. And so that's what I wanted to look at. And I wanted to find out what kind of care would really help people. And that's what I've devoted my life to. So really looking at, you know, not just getting sober, but really looking at like that, there must be some way in which we can move out of this depression, we can move out of our emotional pain or whatever it is that's we're struggling with and create something better. Absolutely. And that's, you know, in 12 step programs, you know, one of the things that says we're not a glum lot, right? That we get sober, not to just get through life, but to really enjoy our lives and connect with other people and be part of our communities and, and connect it right with people. That's really the goal of recovery is connection. And very often we have to go through other struggles. We might have physical struggles. You could have diabetes, you could have heart disease, you could have fibromyalgia, you could have all sorts of physical problems. You could have not gotten really good skills growing up, learning how to communicate with people. You could have mental health issues. You got all sorts of issues that need to be addressed in order to have a really good and happy recovery. Right. Beyond just sobriety, not using like you said, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? We want to live a happy life. We want to live a fulfilling life, a meaningful life that, you know, feels good and is rewarding. Well, because, I mean, listen, let, let's tell the truth here. When we start using, it works. It feels good. Listen, I liked being drunk, you know. It started to have consequences that included wrecking my relationships, not being able to hold down a decent job dying. I was, my liver and kidneys were giving out by the age of 22. I mean, you know, it had consequences, but you know, not having to feel my feelings, which is why I drink worked. Yeah. It worked. And so to just say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, what am I going to do? You know, one of the things I found when I first stopped drinking is I had a lot of money. Now I didn't make very much on my job, but I was spending 60% of my income on alcohol. So right, all of a right. sudden I was like, ooh, I can go to the movies. I can go out to lunch with you. I can I can do all these things, right? So we want to build our lives. It's not just about taking something away. It's about building this really amazing life. And that's yeah. what recovery is about. Absolutely. And there are many ways to do that. I think one of the things I, th- I think in the beginning when you're struggling with an addiction it's like, well, just get rid of that and everything will be fine. And like you said, you begin to realize like, well, that doesn't totally work. I mean, some things get better, but. Well, that's a misunderstanding of addiction, right? And, and most people have it, right? We assume that we are, so I'll use alcoholism as an example, right? If I remove alcohol and alcohol's the problem, then I should get better. But we know when we have someone in treatment, because I work a lot with people who are, you know, in that first 30 days of recovery, they don't get better. They get worse. 
that is the ism, whether, you know, addiction, alcoholism, you know, gambling, whatever. That's what we call the ism. And so the drug, the alcohol, the gambling, the sex or whatever is the solution to whatever my internal problem is. See, if alcohol was the problem, right, I get better. So if sugar is your problem and I get rid of the sugar, immediately your your insulin levels are, you know, going to stabilize, your blood sugar is going to, all, all this right. sort of stuff is going right. to happen. You know, if you get bitten by a snake and I give you anti-venom, we take away the venom, right, by giving anti-venom, you get better. So there's right. something else going on with the addict because the, the person with addiction gets worse initially. They don't yeah. know what to do with themselves, right? When I was in these servers, I was like, I'm crazy. I'm like, this is what I do. It's one of the reasons why you're asked to do service work and, and go to, you know, different sorts of support groups and all that kind of stuff because you don't know what to do with yourself. I spent all my time drinking. So now what do I do with myself? And if I don't do something with myself, well, then I'm going to fill it with drinking. Yeah. Because that's what I do. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit because you had said earlier, as you were doing this work, you're seeing these veterans come in who, you know, they're struggling and high suicide rate, a lot of depression. And you yourself had sobriety, but also had this depression. And you had to do something with that, it sounds like. I did. So I have a, a lot of very significant early childhood trauma. I write about that in my books. I wrote about it in, in the Rock to Recovery book that I we just published last year. And, you know, sobriety doesn't make that better. I drank to dampen the trauma symptoms, the hypervigilance and the being outside of time and the dissociation, all that. Drinking helped me feel better. I used to go to a bars and drink and I would feel my index finger right? You know, the index finger of my left hand with my right hand. And when it felt like wood, that's what I was going for. I wanted to feel nothing. Now, being a good alcoholic, I continued drinking after that until I fell off the bar stool, right? But I wanted to feel nothing. Yeah. And so in sobriety, when I wasn't pouring alcohol on those feelings, and there wasn't, this is over 20 years ago, there wasn't good trauma treatment I was plagued with trauma symptoms. So I really understood why the veterans would kill themselves because it doesn't feel, sobriety doesn't feel good and there's no other options, right? The, the treatment that you're getting doesn't solve the problem. And so that's why I really committed to myself. There was a veteran who I just really connected with and he was 23. He had returned from you know Iraq and Afghanistan. He was medically discharged. He was severely disabled from a, an injury he received in combat. All he'd wanted to be his whole life was a Marine. And he eventually killed himself. Oh. You know, and he was getting the best treatment that the VA had to offer. And he had a, you know, he had an infant child and a wife. And oh. I thought, I'm miserable. This guy didn't make it. And there has to be good treatment. And I just devoted myself to that. There has to be good treatment. And the truth is, there is. And it's in the form of complementary therapies. It could be readily accessible, but there's nobody advocating for it really because there's no money to be made in it. See, if I teach you how to meditate, you don't need me. If I teach you how to do breath work, you don't need me. If I teach you about how music, singing, along to the radio will vastly improve your mood 
You don't need me. There's no money to be made. Now, if I make a pharmaceutical and I tell you, well, it'll make it'll make you feel better. I mean, it kills right. me. You have to take, you know, one medication for your depression and then another medication because your first medication made you suicidal, but the second medication might make you suicidal also. I'm like, that's not solving the problem, right? But there's money to be made there. So complementary therapies, with the exception of acupuncture, because you do need an acupuncturist to do that. Complementary therapies are about teaching us life skills that will support us in our mental health and our recovery. Each of them independently, they're nice, but they don't solve the problem. There's something about when you do several of them together that is synergistic and it is more than the sum of its parts. And that's what I want to share because you don't have to be an addict. You don't have to be in early recovery. You don't have to have some sort of severe mental health issue. You can just be a regular person who's having a bad day and these complementary therapies will improve your outlook. Right. You bring that in and you can create different feelings with it, better feelings, more joy, even if it's a small little piece, it's the start of something that you you can grow. So let's talk about your book. You have Rock to Recovery. You also write poetry, Meeting God at Midnight. And so I'm seeing as those as complementary, some of the complementary things. So I would love to talk about that. And, you know, it sounds like you're passionate about bringing those things to people. I am because, so let's talk about the poetry first. I, because of, or likely because of, it's my problems are idiopathic. We don't know the source, but likely because of the abuse that I suffered as a girl, I was unable to have children. And the good news for me is I didn't want kids. I want to write and kids take time and attention and writing takes time and attention. And I couldn't give both of them my time and attention. And so I always wanted to be a writer, but I still had to process the grief of not having a choice. And I had to process the grief of feeling like the choice was taken from me. And so I wrote this book, Meeting God at Midnight. It's under my Hebrew name, Ahuva Batya, which means beloved daughter of God, which was not my given Hebrew name. I changed my Hebrew name, which I'm actually writing a book about that now, about changing my name and how important that was for me. But I wrote this book and the reason I use poetry and anybody can use poetry. You don't have to have, you know, a certain rhyme or a certain meter or anything like that. That's rap, right? When we put that into music, that's rap. But I just write my feelings down. <laughs> Journaling, right, is another right. way to put it. Right, right. I, have, I mean, I got an editor and I published it because I write at a, a certain level, but you don't have to be good. And this is the thing I, I think is so important that I want to share with people is you don't have to be good, like professional, to do any of these things, to write music, to play music, to sing, to write poetry, to journal, to craft, to act, to whatever. You don't have to be good at it because your brain, and I'm literally talking about the neurology of your brain, doesn't know the difference between skilled and unskilled. It only knows that you do it. So with the poetry, I wrote these poems and, and my goal was, because one of the things we we learn about narrative is the world is the way we believe. Yes. So if I believe I can't get sober, I can't get sober, right? We create self-fulfilling prophecies. 
And so I used writing because I love to write more than anything. I used writing to express those feelings, but also to change my worldview. So that I started out with, you know, some poems, like there's a poem 1984, where I talk about being about eight years old, standing on the top of the grain silo on my parents' farm and thinking about whether or not I wanted to jump off of it because I couldn't endure being abused the way I was anymore, right? And and then that transitions to, by the end of the book, this real connection to a higher power. Because what I realized is that life goes the way life goes, right? My higher power doesn't give me parking spaces and best-selling books and whatnot. I didn't have help as a child because the people around me didn't help me. I was abused as a child because my father made certain decisions. And I don't believe that that was, quote unquote, God's will. That's just what happened. He made choices. Right. So I so in writing this book, I went from a very victimized point of view to this idea that, oh, wait a minute, we are here to be each be to be God's hands and feet. I'm here to be of service to you. If I don't step up for you when I realize that you're having a problem, that's not on God. That's on me. So I went from this very victimized point of view to change that perspective to be more powerful, right? To be an actual agent in my life. And when things are not going to break my way. And I think about this in terms of like the Holocaust. There are people that they knew going up to the gas chambers that they were not coming out. They knew getting on those those cars that they were not coming out. They didn't necessarily know what was happening, but they knew I'm not getting right. out of And in those situations where it's not going to go our way, where we're going to lose the job, our friend is going to die, we're going to lose the house, whatever it is, the the flood is coming. I can rely on this energy of support to be like, I'm either going to get through this or I'm going to die with grace and dignity. Right, right. And, and. I think what I what I hear you describing too, and I think is an important point, is that this is something that built it's built from small little steps. Like you said, you could just start it. You don't have to be perfect at it. You don't have to be great at it. It's just a little little piece, and over time, that grows into what you're describing. I think as that resilience. Right, it grows into change, and so yeah, so. You know, you don't have to publish a book like my book won, you know, best poetry in Texas in 2015. You don't have that doesn't need to be what you're doing. Right. But if you write down what you feel and then you change the story, right, you change the story from I'm a victim to, oh, hey, wait a minute. Because what I started to see is, oh, wait a minute. People did start to show up. Right. And so I think about when I was in high school, my father wasn't abusing me anymore at this point, but I I think about when I was in high school and my Girl Scout leader and my 4-H leader, my 4-H leader, my mom wanted me to be a barrel racer. I don't like to go fast. I don't like fast at all. I want to go very slow and meticulous when I ride. And she pulled my mother aside and she said, she's not barrel racing anymore. Wow. So so there were people that did come to your aid 
that you could begin to see it as you change this narrative. And as I changed the narrative, I could see it. And I also could see I let them in. See, as a little girl, I was so terrified. I didn't let nobody knew what was happening. Right. We lived way out in the country. I didn't I didn't tell a teacher. I didn't tell a grandparent. Well, first of all, I didn't have the language to describe it. But also, I, I didn't say anything. Right. Because, right. Uh, you know, and so there wasn't an opportunity necessarily for people to connect with me. But once, you know, people, you know, I told my 4-H leader, she said, why are you pulling your horse up when you're in a race? And I said, I don't like going fast. She immediately went to my mother. She's like, one of them is going to get either the horse or the girl's going to get hurt. No more. Done. Right. As soon as I let someone in, they helped me. And that's something we learn in addiction recovery. And it's applicable to anything in any part of our life, addict or no. If we let people in, it's very likely there are people who will help us. Absolutely. And you create the space for that. One thing I'm thinking as you're talking, I can hear some people saying, well, you're changing the narrative. That means, you know, you're just lying to yourself or, mm -hmm. you know, but what I see is like, it's all present there. All of it is true. Right. If that so makes sense. Yeah, so I don't believe in truth with a capital T. Right. I think a lot of different things are true. And we see this right with when people get into a fight, right? And it's like, well, uh, blah, blah, blah. From my perspective, it's this. And from your perspective, it's that. And so I think, you know, there are facts that are true, right? right. It's raining outside. It's not raining outside. But how I relate to those facts is what makes all the difference. Am I a victim because it's raining? Well, maybe if it's, you know, like we had up where I live, you know, we had floods a few months ago. And I mean, we're getting the cattle and, and, and trying to swim them to safety because you can't move that many cattle in horse trailers, right? So swimming the cattle out. Okay, that, there's facts there that right. I can look at that as the farmers lost this many cattle, or I can look at it the farmers were able to save this many cattle. The facts are still the same. The floods came, the cattle died. But how do I look at it? It's that glass half full, glass half empty. You know, I went through terrible things. I would never wish any of that on anyone. But now having healed from it, knowing that people commit atrocities all the time, I can reach back to other people, even who don't have the same kind of trauma, just any sort of trauma and be like, man, I know what it's like to have intrusive thoughts. I know what it's like to have body memories. I know what it's like to not be able to stay in the present. I know what it's like to be hypervigilant. You know, I, I understand that. And I can say, yeah, I'm here with you as right. you heal. And that's the thing. I can't fix it. I'm just with somebody. And you can do that through like some of your tools, like you said, your poetry and sharing that, your rock to recovery and, and music. Th those are all like tools to facilitate that process. That's, that's how I see it. Correct. And there are a whole bunch of different things, meditation, breath work, um, acupuncture, music, somatics. There, there's lots of different things. So music is very interesting. And that's why I wrote a book about it, uh, Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation with Wes Gear, who's the founder of the company Rock to Recovery. And what that group does is they write and record songs with 
people in addiction treatment centers, mental health facilities, all, all veteran, VA groups, all sorts of different places, youth groups. What we know about music is that music, playing music and singing, more than listening to music, although listening to music also has therapeutic benefits, playing music and singing dumps a whole bunch of feel-good chemicals in your brain. So when you sing a song, again, you can sing it badly. Your brain doesn't know the difference. You dump serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. So you feel better. Now imagine you've had a bad day and you're in your car stuck in traffic and a song you like comes on the radio and you do your own carpool karaoke and you sing, I don't matter if you're sharp, you're flat, you're late, it doesn't make any difference, you belt it out. What happens? Oh, you feel great. You feel better. That's actually a neurochemical response. So if people just spend a little bit of time singing, right? they would feel better, that improve their mood. And we know this to be true. So in an addiction, we apply this information to different settings. So in an addiction treatment center, where because people have been ingesting chemicals, right, from the outside to change their feeling state, usually they're not producing serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin at normal levels. So right, right, you yeah. and I sitting in, in the car, we, we feel a bump. Yeah, you know, got my groove on. I'm feeling better because they're, neurochemicals are suppressed or depressed, they get a huge bump from the same amount of neurochemicals. So they leave feeling high. And what that does is it engages them in treatment more. I can't tell you the number of people who've said, I stayed in treatment because I felt so high after rock to recovery and I wanted to do that. You know, again, so they yeah. stay engaged in treatment. Now that wears off after a few hours. But if you keep doing these different activities, it breaks up the thought, the obsessive thought patterns of addiction, right? I got to get my yes. drug. I got to get my drug. I got to get my drug. Cause when I'm drinking, you know, I'm, I'm sober, you know, long time over, over 23 years. When I'm drinking, I'm thinking about drinking when I'm not drinking, right? It's a thought problem. And so this breaks that up, but also keeps releasing. So if we do breath work, it releases these feel-good chemicals. If we do meditation, it releases these feel-good chemicals. If we do grounding exercises, it helps us with our trauma. So all of these things synergistically create more than the sum of their parts. Right, right. Well, I was going to say, too, the realization that nothing just changes immediately. Sometimes that no. pain just doesn't go away. But this consistent kind of pursuit of these other activities, these complementary activities, slowly over time will change it. I, I think that's the hard part is that, you know, when we're in, in a lot of pain, we just want out so fast. And it's like that patience of like, oh, I know you're in pain. I know you're hurting, but just keep doing this. It will get better. Keep investing in it. Keep trying. So this is, this is the addict's dilemma is I want to feel better now and I know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. I want to feel nothing. When I drink, I want to feel nothing. And so I know how to do that. I know exactly how much alcohol it takes for me to feel nothing. You know, I had a, sur I had a surgery and I was in the hospital and I was on a Dilaudid drip. You know, this is in the hospital post-surgical. My sponsor knows all about it. There's nothing wrong with that. But 
in the night, the heart monitor starts going off because my heart rate was going so low every time I pressed the button. And the nurse came in. She's like, you know, you could you could die. You need to stop pressing the button. And in a good addict form, and I was like, well, if it bothers you, you could just turn off the alarm. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the next day, I they said I could go home today. And she said, yeah, but you have to be off the drip. She was standing in the doorway. I'm not kidding. I looked at the door. I looked at the drip. I looked at the door. I looked for a full minute before I was like, okay, I actually want to go home. It wasn't even really making me high. It was really dealing with the with the post-operative pain. I didn't have painkillers after I left the hospital, but I mean, that addict, I know how to fix it. So to, for someone to say to me as an addict, you know, oh, well, just, you know, it's going to get better. I'm like, no, no, here are some tools that'll help you get better right now. Are they going to last? No, but neither did alcohol and neither did the Dilaudid, right? It wears off and I got to have more. But the difference is, is that these tools don't tear my life down. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Like you, you can feel better for these moments. You're doing these activities and you can enjoy that moment in which you're feeling better and they might go away after you're done doing that and there may be some pain there but you can go do something else right and when you keep doing something else and changing it up then your brain actually rewires yeah what yeah. fires together wires together is a common phrase in uh, neurology and, and, and uh, neuroscience and so you know, one of the things that makes people feel better, which again, you know, medical professionals don't usually prescribe because nobody's making money off of this, is service. Going out and helping someone else, especially when you don't feel good, mm -hmm. will make you feel better. You know, and it can be little, you know, because of the pandemic, my I have an elderly neighbor. She's 80 years old. You know, she's got all her shots, but she still gets nervous going to the grocery store. So when I'm going to the grocery store, I call her up and I was like, hey, you need any eggs? You need any vegetables? You got Is there anything I can? I'm going to the store anyway. She lives just five right. minutes from me. What is it? Her? She feels good. I feel good, right? Sometimes I stay and have tea and we connect and we talk. Sometimes I just drop off the eggs, right? That is always going to help you, you know, when you can, you know, hold the door open for someone coming behind you, you know, who's clearly rushing and trying to get in. When someone's moving in front of you in traffic, let them in and don't flip them off. How about that? You esteemable acts, small acts of kindness are going to make you feel better. It doesn't yes. have to be these grand things. I mean, listen, when we're depressed, sometimes we don't bathe as much as we should, right? But yep. every time you get up and you, you, one of the reasons, and you take that shower or you make the bed or you get out of the pajamas that you've been wearing for three days, all of those things because they're self-care, those are all self-care, they give you just a little boost, just a little boost, you know? And I get it, sometimes people can't do it, but every time you fight against that, every time you do what you can, every time you do those small acts of kindness, it means something. Yeah. yeah. And it might mean more than you think it does. Just like, 
you know, my 4-H leader is just trying to, you know, stop a mess from happening as I'm pulling up a horse that wants to run, right? She doesn't know that 35 years later, I'm still talking about how she stood up for me when nobody else did. Right. And to, and to be able to see that and, and hold that even in this present moment helps you feel good because you've changed the narrative of it. That's it. The facts didn't change at all. My mom wanted me to be a barrel racer. I don't like to go fast. My horse was a little bit more than I could handle. And somebody intervened and said, this is a mistake. Right. And focusing on that person helping you, like it, it generates, it, you, you feel better. You, you, you just, you're just looking at it differently and just seeing this other element and focusing on that element instead of that element and this well, exactly. element. So it's not that my mother didn't hear me. My mother still doesn't hear me. Okay. I don't need her to. That's the change. Nothing has changed, right? Except me. Except me, you know, and they're uh, in Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions. They talk a lot about if I'm upset, there's something wrong with me. Buddhists talk about suffering is the hook, right? People get old, people die, you know, we lose jobs, all the things happen. Am I hooked into it? Because it's normal for me to feel sad. If my friend dies, I feel sad. Right. If I'm unable to do anything 10 years after my friend dies. Now that's suffering. Now I'm hooked in. So I want to feel my feelings and have a normal human experience, but also not get hooked. And that's what addiction is, is I've gotten hooked on some past problem, right? Usually resentments or fear is is what 12-step programs will say, but I've gotten hooked on some past problem. Trauma will look at it differently. It'll say the body is actually holding the resonance. And I have to, I get to in recovery. I don't have to. In recovery, I get to let it go. And I get to learn tools that help me to let it go. So one of the things that's helped me more than anything is somatic experiencing understanding that trauma is stored in the body and that when I can feel those feelings and release them, they no longer have a hold over me. Changed my life. Changed my life. Now, what's unfortunate is somatics are usually not covered by insurance. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's a hard part. You know, so that that's a challenge with that. And so that's why I really focus on these complementary therapies that are skills that I can add to the things that I have to pay for. Yeah. And I, and I think you're, you're painting this whole picture of all these different avenues of healing. You know, there is the professional mental health and all of that. And those, those are helpful, but there's this whole other side of stuff that we just have to do. And it helps us feel better. We, it'll, it'll create the life. If you're doing music, writing, poetry, walking, meditation, whatever it is, going to start feeling better. You're going to be building the life that you enjoy, that you want. Yeah. So there's two different things at play. First is some people need professional support and that's great. And I absolutely love when people get that. And there shouldn't, in my opinion, shouldn't be a stigma around that, right? If you go to the doctor for a broken arm or for diabetes or for mental health care, it doesn't matter. And complementary therapies will very often support 
what you're doing in psychotherapy. Because listen, what do you go to psychotherapy? One hour a week? You know, yeah. if you're in analysis three hours a week, well, what do you do with all the other hours, right? So this, it's supportive of that. Also, you can use those very same modalities, therapeutics, to build your mental health. You know, people lift weights so that their muscles are stronger. People do cardio so that their cardiovascular system is stronger, right? But we are like, you know, meditate, you know, uh, have some sort of spiritual practice, learn how to breathe deeply and appropriately, or learn how to breathe to release difficult tensions, you know, emotions. You know, there's something called in shamanic practice called shaking medicine, which is also called TRE, trauma release exercises. But if you see a bird that has just been, or, or a rabbit that's just been attacked and escapes, it'll usually go under a bush, someplace secluded and puff itself up and shake. It trembles, right? That's actually the release of trauma. They don't hold it. We hold it. Right. And so there are all sorts of connections. I was in Namibia working with the San Bushmen and seeing their rituals and they use clapping, syncopated clapping, foot stomping and trance in a community, right? So they don't usually use drums, but they clap and stomp their feet and sing these songs. And when someone's sick, the whole community comes together and they work with them. So listen, it doesn't, does it cure cancer? Well, I don't think so, but would it help someone who wasn't feeling well because they had cancer and, and they wouldn't know, you know, unless the growth was, you know, exterior, would it help them to feel better and supported? And, you know, that's right. what I'm talking about. And all of these things can help us either privately, right? Like writing is usually private, you know, although you could do a, a, an open mic, but whether privately or in community, it connects us together. And that's where the healing is. Anytime we're alone, anytime we're isolated, we don't have a chance. Then right. the only thing that works is to pour booze on, for me, is to pour booze on it. Right. And, get, and, and you get stuck in that old way of thinking. And what you had said earlier, too, was we understand this more now than ever, how plastic the brain is, how plastic our nervous system is. And that these things we know with research change the chemistry of all of that and change how we are in the world by changing that. And that these work, they take investment, they take time, they take effort. Not all do they work perfectly every time. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But you keep going, you keep doing it, and you keep getting better. Well, I think, you know, what really changed the treatment of addiction and the treatment of trauma as well. Right. Because I really work at the intersection of addiction and trauma. And what really changed for us and, and skyrocketed, you know, healing for people is the understanding of epigenetics and neuroplasticity. Yes. That, as you said, the brain changes. We used to think, right, that once you got to 25, the brain was static. It is what it is. If it got damaged, you're screwed. And that's the end of it. And we're like, oh, no, actually, the brain changes all the time and we can rewire it in certain ways. And the yep. other thing that we learned with epigenetics is that, yeah, you a predisposition is sort of like a chance. And before we really understood what we do now about epigenetics, 
I used to say to people, I said, because we didn't have the, the evidence to support it, but I used to say, I think what we're going to find about addiction and why some people become addicted and others don't is similar to obesity, right? Some people can eat absolutely anything and they don't gain weight. And there are other people who look at macaroni and cheese and right, yeah. gain weight, you know, that you gain weight. I mean, calories in, calories out also plays, yeah, has a lot to do with it, right? But there is this propensity of does food work for you to deal with your emotions or does it not? It's like the people who say, oh, I drank a half a glass of champagne and it made me feel tingly. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, you should keep going. Or, oh, I felt so sick. And I was like, well, then you just throw up and drink some more. Like, you know, right? because like, alcohol works for me. And so if you're on a continuum, Right then, and we're learning this with ACEs, with adverse childhood experiences, right? That there are these things that trigger different parts of our potential genetics to turn them on. Yeah. Right. So why why do Native Americans, for example, have a higher rate of addiction than the general global population? Well, it's likely because of cultural trauma for generation after generation after generation, right? There's trauma that keeps getting passed down, right? And so, oh, well, now all the markers for that alcohol to work or drugs to work start getting turned on in the population and no access to quality medical health care. Right, yeah, and understanding that, you know, it's like this whole cascade of neurochemistry, of our genetics will respond differently to substances, to food, whatever. And we have to, yeah, we have to realize like all these events, there's a lot at play underneath the surface, but we're beginning to understand it more. We're beginning to see it and really be able to start to change it because we understand it more. Well, it's not only understanding it, it's also accepting it. So I know an individual and he loves to say, he's like, I've never used a drug in my life. I don't even know if he's ever been drunk. And, he, you know, he's my age, you know, he's 45, 50, somewhere in there. And I just look at him and I'm like, dude, you weigh over 400 pounds. Yep. He thinks addiction is only drugs. And the stigma around drugs is different, although there is still stigma, around food addiction. Yeah. Right? If I'm at my house and I'm drinking and I run out of booze, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get more booze. If I am at my house and I am in, I mean, I'm, I'm overweight. I mean, that's, that's clear. But if I'm in my house and I'm in my pajamas and I'm like, oh, I want some Twinkies, ice cream, cheeseburgers, right. whatever it is, there is zero chance that I am going to get dressed and drive to town and get whatever that thing, zero chance. So it just shows you what works for me and yeah. what doesn't. So something, so like sugars, if it's convenient, right. oh, I like a little sugar because then I don't have to feel my feelings. So there, that's convenient. I'll do that. But that's really not my drug of choice, so to speak. Like it doesn't work for me the same way. And I won't gamble at all because I put a dollar, I, you know, I've gambled a couple of times. I put a dollar down on the table and then. 13 seconds later, I've lost the hand and you take my dollar away. I'm like, 
I want a dollar's worth of goods and services here. And that was not fun. Yep. I don't get that when I win. I don't get that rush. I'm like, it cost me, you know, $40 to, to win five. This can we go to something else, please? Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, our uniqueness of how we respond to different chemicals, you know, food, drugs, behaviors like gambling or sex or whatever is unique to all of us, right? Exactly. It's unique to us. And then I'd also say these complementary modalities of, of helping ourselves are also unique. So we, we have to be willing to explore and try and and find what works. Right. And that's and, and, and the other part of that is is we relate to some things more than others, but also there are some things that are fairly universal. So like I love acupuncture because it's passive. I don't have to do anything. I go, I lay down on the table, poke, 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 poke. I fall asleep. The guy comes back and takes the needles out and I feel better. You know, we all feel better singing. Right. Singing just as up. I mean, think about the, why is the choir so fundamental or the chant so fundamental to Eastern religions, Western religion, doesn't matter. People connect in song. We are up spiritually uplifted in song. I don't, I don't care. You want ska, you want country, you want hip hop. I don't care. Who cares? Who cares? But if you only focus on one, the the benefits are limited. Yeah. Because each thing affects the mind and body in a different way. And so you want to keep poking the brain essentially and saying, Hey, what about this? What about that? So that you don't over focus because addiction is about obsession. I'm going to focus on Drink, 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 drug, 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 to the exclusion of all else. And this is like saying squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. And pretty soon my brain starts rewiring. I'm like, oh, this is a better view over to my right than drink, 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 drink to my left. I start to have choices that I didn't have before. Right. So go out and explore. So we're starting to run on our time here. So what I, I love to ask guests before we end is just if someone out there is struggling and you could tell them one thing, what would you want to say to them? I want to say that there's hope. We are losing so many people to suicide, to disconnecting from friends and family, to overdose, to all sorts of different mental health issues. And you don't have to be a statistic. There are good treatments available because of COVID. A lot of them are online. A lot of them are now available virtually. And many of them, not all, but many of them are low cost or free. Look for them and connect with other people. Keep asking for help until you get it. Definitely, definitely, definitely hope. Thank you so much. Where can people find more information about you or if they want to connect with you? How can they do that? So I have a website. I'm on all the socials from, you know, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, every, all the socials. And of course, uh, my books are available on Amazon. Awesome. Great. I will put links in the show notes as well at theaddictedmind.com. Constant, thank you so much for coming on, just sharing your wisdom and your enthusiasm and your passion for helping others. Thank you so much. And anyone who needs help, please reach out. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, click the subscribe button. 
and maybe even leave a review in iTunes. I really do appreciate that. That means a lot to me and it helps people find the podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.